Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. We are beginning a brand new series. It's called The Gospel According to Leviticus. The Book of Leviticus. Has anybody ever read the Book of Leviticus? No shame. Yes. Okay, great. So, um... The Old Testament is amazing. It's incredible. It's God's first revelation, his first covenant with man, right? Looking towards the second revelation, the final covenant through Jesus Christ. And if you want to know how you read the Old Testament, there is one main rule. You read the Old Testament through Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards the coming of the Messiah, is describing what, it's, what, it, what the world's going to look like once Messiah arrives, right? Um, I grew up Baptist, and there were these two words that really helped me understand things, types and shadows. <laughs> and the bottom line is every single thing you see in the Old Testament is speaking to Messiah, to the kingdom of God once Messiah has come. Who is Messiah? Jesus Christ. Amen. And so there is the gospel absolutely is revealed in the book of Leviticus. And the sermon is entitled, The Sacrifices Tell a Story. Because the book of Leviticus is basically an instruction manual to the priests, the Levites. Leviticus is the Latin term, and it means of the Levites or about the Levites. And God is instructing Moses to teach the Levites how to do all these sacrifices, all these offerings. And we're going to find out why in a moment. But um, Exodus and Leviticus are actually very closely related. Um, Leviticus begins right at the end of Exodus. And Exodus is significant because it's Israel coming out of slavery, God calling them out of slavery, setting them free, telling them you are going to become a mighty nation, and then taking them to the promised land. And then their slave mindset, their slave little hearts cannot cope with what God is requiring of them because they haven't yet learned how to put all their faith in God. And so for 40 years, they, are, they have to walk around the desert until that generation of faithlessness disappears. It passes away, right? And in that time, God raises a whole new generation who've lived in the desert and are desperate and hungry to get into the promised land. They want what God has promised them. And in those 40 years, they become a nation. And a lot of significant things happen in those 40 years. God gives them the law. Moses goes up the mountain and the Ten Commandments are inscribed on the tablets, right? Um, The next most significant thing is that God uh, gets Moses to build the tabernacle. God literally, while Moses is up there getting the Ten Commandments, the Lord literally instructs him uh, by centimeters and meters and inches exactly how the tabernacle should be. And that's a study we should do sometime as a church because that tabernacle of Moses literally represents Jesus Christ. It's a picture of everything Jesus is, everything he needs to do, everything he will do, everything that needs to come. But there's another significant moment while Moses is up on the mountain uh, worshiping God, seeing God face to face. The Israelites have just come through the Red Sea. They've just watched God absolutely destroy the Egyptian army. And then they're stuck at this mountain and Moses disappears for like three weeks. And what do they do? Do you remember what they do? The golden calf. 
And in that moment, literally, while God is manifest, they can see the physical manifestation of God on the mountain. But they're so insecure, they're so uncertain that they have all they know is idols. And so they're convinced that God swallowed Moses up, that he died. <laughs> and they lose all faith and all hope, and they build an idol, and they sin. And when Moses comes down the mountain, there is just a sinning people. <laughs> but as I said, God then gives Moses the, the template for the tabernacle. And right at the end of Exodus, literally within the last verses of Exodus, there's something very significant that happens. The, te- the tabernacle is dedicated to God. And God's holy presence fills that temple so powerfully, so fully, so completely, that even Moses, who is used to standing in the, in the very face of God, cannot enter that tent. He is too sinful. And so the book of Leviticus starts directly after that. It says that the Lord calls out to Moses and says, I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> but Moses can't go in. He is too, te- too, too sinful. And so literally the beginning of Leviticus asks the question, how can sinful, unrighteous, rebellious Israel enter the presence of a holy God? If Moses, who is used to standing face to face with God, can't even do it, what is the hope for them? And then we enter in to the book of Leviticus. But the sacrifices tell a story, and this is a continuing story all the way from Genesis And the story of the sacrifices is this, that God is the one who pursues his people. God pursues you and I. Throughout the history of creation, it is so obvious that God is the one who pursues us. The universe did not ask to be created. (laughs) Light and sun and moon and stars and animals and mankind never appealed to God to be formed. Did you ask God to be born? The Lord decided in his sovereignty that he wanted to share his experience, his goodness, his love with something like him. Something made in his image, something he could put his breath into, something he could partner with throughout all eternity. Something who could love and cherish and take delight in. Who would love and cherish and take delight in him. And so God wanted you so much that he created the universe and then he put you in it. God is the one who is seeking us. He is the one who pursues us. You know, he prophesies through Ezekiel chapter 34 verse 16. He says, I will seek the lost. And I will bring back back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. Jesus echoes these words in John 19, verse 10. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You are here tonight because God pursued you, because Jesus sought you out. I am here tonight because God pursued me. And Jesus sought me out. And if you look through the books of Genesis, of Exodus, (laughs) Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in fact, the whole Bible, you will never find a man instigating a relationship with God. Never once. God is the one pursuing. God makes us without us asking him to. And we know the story of Adam and Eve, right? Beautiful. 
That's God pursuing man. That's God making the thing that he's going to love that's going to love him back. But you know what? Through their sin, they shatter the intimate, beautiful, loving relationship they have with God. And why does that happen? Because they believe a lie about God. The serpent whispers into their ear and makes them believe that God isn't enough. God's holding out of them. The second that happens, they become not enough. If the God you've been worshiping isn't enough, guess what? You're not. He's the one who made you. He's the one who breathed you. It's a lie. It is a complete and utter lie. And the second they feel like they're not enough, they have to start scrambling to figure out how to be enough. And we know the story, right? They put on scratchy, itchy fig leaves and they hide in a bush. What do we see God doing? He comes to find them. He's pursuing them. He walks right up to their bush and he says, where are you? He's the one looking for them. They are not looking for him. In the very moment of their lives when they should be crying out for God, they're hiding in a bush. That's what, that's what every single human being does. But God comes and they think he's judging them. But what he's doing is giving them an opportunity to repent. He's coming to them to say, come to me. They don't get it. They don't get it. And this is our God. God continually moves close to the brokenness of his people. They are shattered. They are in shame. They have nothing to hope for. And God comes close to them in their brokenness. And his desire is always, no matter what, to move us into wholeness. Is there brokenness in your life tonight? It's not fun, right? But the joyful good news is if you're broken, you can become whole. If you're broken, there's a guarantee of wholeness if you will take it. And so Adam and Eve make the choice to break the fellowship they have had with him because they can no longer stand in his holy presence. Because now they are so full of sin and shame that they would rather run away than be with them. But even then... God pursues them. And we see this again because the last thing that happens before they are made to leave the Garden of Eden is that God himself clothes them in the skins of animals. Now, the only way I know how you get skins of animals is what? <laughs> Has anybody ever sacrificed? Well, no, no, we don't sacrifice. Has anybody slaughtered a goat, a chicken, a cow, been present when one's doing? I remember being friends with pig farmers, and I love bacon and pork. And I remember at 11 being very horrified when they let me see how they slaughtered the pigs. <laughs> it didn't quell my desire for bacon. Um, there's only one way you get a skin off an animal. You cut it off. That means the animal has to die. That means that there's a lot of blood and gore. But think about that picture. God himself, when they have uncovered themselves in their sin and their shame, God himself covers them with his love and his mercy and his grace through this beautiful prophetic picture of sacrifice. He wraps them in these bloody skins and they're covered. They're not naked anymore. And it's way better than fig leaves. Anything we try to, to cover our shame with, it's just going to be useless. But when God comes, it's absolute. It's beautiful. 
And God is the only one who can cover them. He's the only one who can cover you and I. We cannot cover ourselves. We try daily, right? All our failure that we think is sin, which is sin, is because we try to do it ourselves. I know. I know when I'm trying to do something myself because it goes horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> I've been doing this for a while. The record, when am I ever going to actually just stop trying to do it by myself? But where I've come to in 35 years of being a Christian is that I now know when it's not working, I'm doing it in myself. It's a step up. There's still better to do, though. And when we see throughout the book of Genesis, God is the one who comes to Abraham. Abraham was not looking for a God, but God comes to him. He comes to Isaac when Isaac is losing his faith because he's struggling with warfare in the desert, the worst place to be at warfare, two horrible things, a dry, arid place and at war because he's trying to dig wells and people are fighting him every step of the way. The Lord comes to him and makes covenant with him. Isaac is not seeking God. When Jacob has deceived his brother and his father Isaac and has stolen a birthright and his big bushy red-haired brother Esau is threatening to kill him and he's this little guy and he runs into the desert. He's fleeing for his life. He is not seeking God. And he sleeps on a rock. That is just a symbol of there is no further down to go. When your pillow is a rock, you are done. In that moment, in a dream, God comes and recovenants with him. And it just goes on and on and on that God is the one pursuing. All the way through to Moses. Moses was not looking for God. Moses was ready to die in the wilderness of Midian. Covered in sheep poo because he was a shepherd. And he was wandering along aimlessly with no faith. No hope, no expectation. And what did God do? Set a bush alight. And it did not consume. God came to Moses. And the whole reason we have Exodus and Leviticus is because God came to Moses. And now the people of Israel, he has brought them out of slavery. And there they are witnessing a manifestation of God's glory that we wish we could see. And what do they do? They build a golden calf. They're not looking for God. But this is where Leviticus starts. They're not looking for God, but God is saying, I am looking for you. And the whole issue of Leviticus is this. Isaiah 43, 15. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. God is holy. They consecrated themselves before Moses went up. They did ritual purifications. Moses goes up. They lose their faith. They're in sin. But the Lord comes back. He fills up the tabernacle they've built for him. He fills it up with his glory. It's visible. It's the Shekinah glory. We don't actually know what that word means. But it's a cloud. It's fire. It's something glorious and amazing. Again, wouldn't you love to know this church has a pillar of cloud in it and it's the Lord himself. <laughs> but they are not holy. They are not interested in being holy. And the word holy means to be set apart. It means to be unique. In the very mystical Hebrew of it, it literally means to be other than. God is other than. He is not human. Jesus was a human. But God is not human. He is other than. He is holy. He is set apart. 
And God is set apart from all other things because of his unique role as the creator of all, as the author of life itself, as the one who defines right from wrong. Can you see there, I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. We start with the Lord, we end with the king. He's the one who decides, a Lord decides what is right, what is wrong, what is righteous, what is evil. Only God decides. And if God is holy, he requires that everything around him must be holy, including us, including you and I. But we've just told this tragic tale of Israel. <laughs> they are not holy. <laughs> but remember, God is the one who pursues. And so in Leviticus, God comes back again, just like he did with Adam and Eve, and he made a way for them to walk out of the Garden of Eden covered by his grace. Guess what? In the desert, God is coming to show his people a way that they can be consecrated, and it's all him. You see, God's desire is to be with his people, but his people just want to be autonomous. His people just want to figure out the shortest route to pleasing him. They just want to tick boxes. They're not interested in knowing him. They're not interested in loving him. What do we do, Lord? Wash the cup. Great, we're done. No interest in who he is. But we go a step further. We don't just try and get the shortest route. We try and figure out our own way. We come to God on our terms, and we expect him to rock up the way we want him to rock up. He is the Lord. He is the Holy One. He is the creator of Israel. He is your king. God tells us how we come to him. We do not dictate terms. We don't even negotiate terms. Either you come to God the way he wants you to or don't bother. In the Old Testament, grounds opened up and swallowed you. Fire came out the sky and you did not exist. I would like to see some more of that these days, but I might be at risk, so maybe I shouldn't talk too loudly. <laughs> you see, when we do things our own way, what are we saying? I know good and evil. I know righteous and unrighteous. And whatever we think we know is going to be so completely off God's standard. It's just useless. Why do we mess with it? And so we have to be holy. We must be cleansed. And so if Israel, who is unjust and sinful, wants to live in God's holy presence, they need to become holy. Their sin must be dealt with. And this is the entire purpose of the book of Leviticus. It details how God is graciously providing a way for sinful, corrupt people to live in his holy presence. And what way is that? That way is atonement, just another proof. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, because I am holy. But 2 Corinthians tells us about this way of atonement. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, atonement is the state of being reconciled to God. And it's such a beautiful word, at-one-ment. To be reconciled means to be at one with somebody. And Jesus reconciled us to himself and has then given us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciled us to God, right? But this at one is absolutely amazing. 
But the thing about reconciliation, because we talk about it so much, it just feels really light. Jesus reconciled us, ah, big deal. But there is a very, very big deal in the Bible about atonement, about reconciliation, because it's not just about being reconciled. It's about what is required to be reconciled. And you see, God is a God of mercy, but he's a God of justice. And if you cannot satisfy the demands of justice, there can be no mercy. If Lareko murders my sister and we go to God, and I'm horrified with Lareko for doing that, he never would, but we go to God, and then God looks at us, and God just says to Lareko, oh, it's fine, don't worry about it, you can go. Wait, where am I left? Mercy without justice is just abuse. It's favoritism, it's nepotism. All of us are deeply, deeply unsafe, right? So what does God do? He says, Lareko, you killed Greg's sister. And there's payment to be made. It's a life for a life. That's justice. But Lareko is calling on my mercy. He's calling on my mercy. So Jesus, will you come? Greg, we're going to sort this out. There has to be punishment. There has to be payment. Jesus is going to take it. That's the reconciliation in Christ. But we are reconciled to each other as well because justice is met and mercy is shown to both of us, right? And so the issue of atonement is that there has to be death. Romans 6 verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. If you sin, you earn what? Death. And so blood has to be shed. Without blood, there is no atonement. There is no reconciliation. And that's why Jesus had to die for our sins. And now we are finally coming to that answer that the beginning of Leviticus asks. How can sinful, unrighteous Israel live holy before God? Because God is going to make a way for them to be cleansed and to be reconciled to him. And so the sacrifice, the story the sacrifices tell us is what? That God is the one who pursues us, but that God is then the one who makes a way to cleanse us. He is longing to bring his people close to him, but in order to do this, he must pay the greatest price imaginable so that he can make a way for atonement and for the forgiveness of sin. And so he institutes the sacrificial system. And this is what you're going to read in Leviticus. I encourage you to read it. It's weird. It's strange. It's all about kidneys and livers and where you put them on a bry place. It really is. And it goes on like that, page and page and page after page. But here's the thing. Every single word is referring to Jesus. If you don't know what it means, just think about Jesus. You will see it. And I have loved reading these, these, these offerings again, reading about these sacrifices, because it's made the gospel so much more real. Because it's earthy. <laughs> and so in the sacrificial system, an Israelite would offer up the lifeblood of an animal while confessing his sin to God. Instead of destroying this person, satisfying the demands of justice. 
Instead of God doing that, God wants to forgive him. And so the animal symbolically dies in his place and atones, covers over his sin. Through these rituals, the Israelites were constantly being reminded of God's grace, but also of his justice and of the seriousness of their sin and its consequences. And when we're reading this book, something starts happening in our head. Ah, is, can we just do that quickly? Can I just slough a chicken in the back garden quickly? Then I'm done. No, no, but that's what we want to do as humans, right? But it is very important to note that these offerings and sacrifices in Leviticus must not be seen as humanity's attempt to appease God or earn his favor. The offerings in Leviticus are God's gracious gift to humanity that allow them to be forgiven and live near God's presence. And so Jesus has come to replace every single one of those offerings, every single one of those sacrifices. What the Israelites had was temporary. It was significant and it mattered, right? Because this is how God is giving them a way to live holy before them so he can dwell in his presence. Now let's think about who God is dwelling in their presence. When all his people lived in a tent, God was content to live in a tent with them. When all his people were living in the desert, God moved right into the neighborhood and they saw him every day. You know, I was reading something, some commentary. They're extra, um, extra biblical things, but it's Hebrew-based. It's, it's Jewish-based, right? And they're, they're called eyewitness reports. And there, there are these eyewitness reports of, you know, when they were walking through the desert, it says that there was a cloud by day that led them and a fire by night. So in my little Sunday school book, the Israelites were trudging wearily through the desert and there was a big pillar of fire at night. And in the day, there was a big pillar of cloud. No. By day, that cloud surrounded them. They walked in the midst of it. It was a mist cloud. It watered them. It kept them cool. It kept them hidden from their enemies. At night, that fire encircled them. Why? Who is going to attack anybody with a fire cloud (laughs) surrounding them? Who's going to do it? They lived in the miraculous. But this is God pursuing his people. You and I think we would be like so full of the Holy Spirit, we'd be doing miracles every three seconds. They just got used to it and it became boring because that's, what we, that's the potential we can come to as, as, as human beings. And so this is not our effort before God. God is saying, this is how you do it and you do it every single way I do it. Do you know that King Saul was dis- deposed as king because he broke the rules of the sacrifice? Only the Levites could do it. Paul gets upset because Samuel, who was a Levite, is taking his time and people are leaving in fear. So Paul, Saul just takes it on himself and he does a sacrifice and that's the end. It literally says God left him. Whew. God is serious about this. This isn't our attempt. This isn't our effort. This is God. But Jesus has replaced every one of those sacrifices because Jesus is the lamb slain from the beginning of the world for the sins of humankind. These these sacrifices covered over sins. They mattered. They were important. It was God's way of consecrating his people. But But they went home that afternoon and they sinned. And guess what? They had to come back the next day and do it again. And so we're going to highlight one of these um, offerings, and it's the burnt offering. And so you can read with me there on the screen. 
Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. Oops, I went backwards. Um, you are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's Sons, the priests shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And so this is the burnt offering, and it's the very first one in the book of Leviticus. It is the costliest offering. Every single part of this animal is consecrated to God. It is burnt up to God. It is his alone. There is nothing of man in it. What am I talking about? When you read the rest of the offerings, there's always a portion that is either, either allocated to the priests, that's how they made their living, or to the priests and then to the person sacrificing. But this is the only one that is absolutely burnt up. Humans do not consume any of this. It is for God alone. Now think about Jesus. Did Jesus withhold anything before God? He was fully human. In fact, Scripture tells us that he set aside his godliness. He set aside his Godhead. Before Jesus even came to earth, he was sacrificing. That was his choice and that was his decision. We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his betrayal, right? And what is he doing? Sweating blood. And doctors have a, a name for that. That's a physical condition that comes from overwhelmness and stress. And the issue isn't that Jesus was worried about the physical pain. He was going to be separated from God for the first time in his eternal existence. See, you and I are very acquainted with sin. You and I live without God for weeks on end. Ah, oh. Jesus never, ever did. He was going to go to hell because that's where you and I would go if our sin wasn't dealt with. And he was sweating blood. Already, he's giving out his blood. It hasn't even happened yet. But he's saying, God, if you can take this from me, take it. But your will be done. And he knows. He gets up and he does what needs to be done. You know, Isaiah prophesies and says he was like a lamb, silent before his slaughterers. That doesn't happen. Pigs, oh my word, lambs, squeal. Pigs squeal like human babies. It's very unsettling. <laughs> lambs cry, but Jesus was silent. Why? Because there is no other choice. This is it. He could make another choice, but then what would, where would we be? It's the costliest offering. You bring that animal and it's done. But do you know how awesome God is? Because if you read further in chapter 1, you begin to realize that this, this, this section is talking about a cow, about cattle, about a bull, right? A heifer. The next option God gives, there's, there's a whole burnt offering that you can do with sheep and goats because you can't afford a heifer. 
gets even better. You can't afford either of those. You can go out in the desert, but yes, you need to make the effort, and you go catch a turtle dove or a pigeon. You bring that, God will accept it. Whatever you have, whatever costs you, it has to be everything. But whatever it is, because the record's everything might be a lot bigger than mine. But whatever it is, God doesn't care. It must just be everything. And you bring it. And can you see how he's, he's bringing us out of shame? Because the whole issue of shame is I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes. But if you bring a heifer and it's everything you have, God takes it. If you bring a lamb or a goat and it's everything you have, God takes it. If you bring a turtle dove and a pigeon and it's everything you have, God takes it. Your shame is undone. I found such an irony <laughs> in this. My brain just works differently. I was like, this is awful, cleansing Israel. And oh my word, it's the messiest nightmare you've ever encountered in your life. Do you know what the word gory means? Like blood and guts. That's what gory means. Like what should be inside is splattered everywhere. And it's just not fun. And so this is the irony of these offerings. What, the very thing that's cleansing Israel is messy and uncomfortable and just unpleasant, you know? And then I was thinking about the fact that we live in such a sanitized environment. For a million years, the only way people survived was to slaughter animals and dig in the dirt. And now we're being all freaked out by Leviticus. But it is what it is. Like one of the things that they're told to do is to splash the blood on the side of the altar, right? And so what is that about? It's a mess. When we sin, we make a mess, a big mess. It's messy. And when they splatter your animal's blood on the side of the altar, you are seeing a physical representation of the mess of your sin. That is what is happening there. And so why this absolute focus on blood? Well, it's really important. Leviticus 17, 11a, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Nothing lives without blood. We can take certain organs out of you. We can lop off limbs out of you. We can even take a bit of your brain out of you. You will live. We take your blood out of you, you are dead. And the irony of this atonement is that to receive life, blood has to be shed. And the understanding of Jesus on the cross is that he shed every last drop of his blood. There was nothing left in his body. And remember, there is... To make atonement is to satisfy the demands of justice. Without blood, there is no atonement. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And so this isn't just a vicious, hungry, angry God that's doing this. There is absolute thought and congruency in everything he's telling us to do, right? Because Jesus will shed his blood. The shed blood of Jesus has made atonement for you and I. And the shed blood of all these animals being sacrificed is a prophetic picture of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, coming to take away the sin of the world once and for all. 1 John 2 verse 2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so let's look at some 
random things that stood out to me, nothing random about the Bible, but just what I saw and what I wanted to share with you tonight. And you can take these and you can apply them when you're looking at the rest of the sacrifices. Remember what I said, just think about Jesus. Every last one of them is speaking to Jesus. And so the first one is in verse two, you must make your offering. You cannot offer something that belongs to somebody else. Let's, oh, I wait all the way back now. Oh, just leave it alone. You cannot offer something that isn't yours. It's not a sacrifice. If I reach into Lareco's wallet and then give liberally, <laughs> I am not generous. Lareco's going to get a reward. I'm going to go to jail. And so it's us. It's our own thing. It also has to be voluntary. There is no sacrifice if you are forced to do it. This is Jesus in Gethsemane. God did not force him. He did have a choice. Like I said, he made the choice before he left heaven. And he just stuck to it the whole way. In verse 3, it tells us that we must offer um, something that is unblemished. It has no defect. defect. In some of the in versions, it says without blemish. A blemish is a spot. A defect, right? So we must offer something that is perfect, without spot or defect. 1 Peter 1.19 tells us that we have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is the spotless lamb of God. Nobody else could take our sins away. Only the spotless lamb of God. In verse 5, you must put your hand on the head of the sacrificial animal and then kill it yourself. It's your sin. That animal is standing in your place. It's your sin. All the consequence is yours. It's not a demon that made you do it. It's not somebody else that made you do it. It's you. Place your hand on that animal. Can you see the identification? The reason I'm giving the sacrifice is because I have sinned and this animal is paying the price. Jesus died for your sin and for mine. King David says in Psalm 51 verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he's talking about his sin with Bathsheba, right? The adultery he commits, the baby that is conceived in sin, how he tries to cover it up by having Uriah, her husband, murdered, by putting him in the front of battle. And once Uriah is dead, the baby dies as well. And David feels like he's sorted. But he sinned against God. Do you know what happens when we sin against God? We separate ourselves from him. That's what happened to King David. He doesn't separate from us. He stays with us. He's right there with us. But when we sin against God, we separate ourselves from him. And David thought it was fine, but people knew what was going on. Nathan the prophet comes and tells David, God knows your sin. And then David realizes that he's separated himself from people, relationships. And in fact, through his, through his, through his children later on, because of that act, Absalom rebels against him. Because one of his sons thinks he can do what his father did and rapes his half-sister. David brought that into their lives. And that's when David realizes his sin affected other people. That's us as well, right? When we sin, when we choose to live in sin, we, we, we separate ourselves from relationship with God. And then we separate, separate ourselves from relationship with others. 
Can you see that splashing of the blood on the side of the altar? It's a mess, and we have to face it. But Jesus, Jesus washes our sin away. And then in verse 9, the sacrifice is completely burned by the fire. Jesus is the true whole burnt offering who gave himself completely for us on the cross to earn our atonement, to reconcile us back to God, and to forgive our sins once and for all. I also, as I was reading this, it's absolutely about Jesus. He was completely destroyed. But that fire also destroys all our sin. Our sin is totally destroyed in him. It's taken away. It doesn't exist. God has no more record of it. And all that is required is faith and belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is the spotless lamb, that he's the only one who can save our sin. And then we confess our sin, right? We acknowledge that it's sin. We agree that it's sin. Remember, he is holy. He decides what's right and wrong. It's not up to us. But Lord, it's not so bad. It was just a little bit of dacha. It was only one girl, Lord Jesus. He decides what is sin and righteousness. We confess and we come with all our heart and we pour it out of, upon him. And so can you see that the story the sacrifices tell is our story? It's telling your and my story. It's telling us the story of the amazing God we serve, the God who's pursuing you right now, this very minute. If there's any conviction in your heart, it is not condemnation. It is the holy presence of God pursuing you. And there's only one response tonight, and that's to repent. There's only one response tonight. The living sacrifice is standing right here in this room. He can take your sin away. Do you want him to? Then you come to him and you tell him, let's do that right now. Whatever is going on in your life, whatever conviction has come to your heart, whatever sin you are thinking about, Jesus' blood will wash it away. We'll wash it away. We'll wash it away. We'll wash it away. Come and make a burnt offering before him. Just give it to him. Just tell him all of that is yours, Lord. Just do it in your own words. You know, just take a minute or two. Just ask him to wash you clean. stand to our feet as we're in this space of prayer. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, Jesus, we just thank you that this story reveals how your goodness and your mercy is real for us. And we bring before you the, the things that we try to cover over in and of ourselves, Lord God. 
where we have felt shame and we've tried to justify it before you. We've tried to make excuses for it. We've ignored it. We've buried it. And we've acted like it's all okay. We know, Lord God, that you want to set us free from shame. That is what makes you so good. That you're not looking at that and saying, but you don't you see what you did? You're not looking at us with condemnation, like Greg was saying. You're looking at us saying, my child, I want to free you so that you don't have that shame anymore, that you don't carry that burden anymore. And so we bring it before you, Jesus, and we ask you that you would change us, that you would help us to be free from the things that are, are continuing to keep us in sin. It's only by your grace. It's only through the act of repentance and confession and receiving the grace of God that we can ever be set free. And so we just, we just bring that to you, Lord God, and we want to exchange, Lord. <laughs> we want to give you our sin and receive your grace and receive your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord. Just continue praying for yourself in this moment having your moment to exchange with God. Repentance is an act of saying, I'm not going to do that again. I'm, I'm going to turn away from those things. It's not just apology. It's a determination to choose that instead of looking to our own way of doing things, we're going to look to Jesus. So come and give us your grace, Lord. Thank you that your grace abounds. It's not just a little bit. It is an overwhelming amount of grace. That no matter how far we've gone on our own, that it is never too far for you. That you will always fill this place with your grace. I do want to give an opportunity if there is anybody here that hasn't made that decision of salvation that hasn't come to that place of saying I have been doing things my own way without Christ and I want to receive Jesus I want to have things change for me or like when Lyrico was talking earlier there are some people that may just want to recommit their lives to the Lord to make that decision of I have been doing things my own way but I know that Jesus has been with me before and I want to live for him again and if that is you I do want to give you an opportunity to respond to receive prayer that we will pray with you we will stand with you and we will try and help you to get connected to people so that you're not just trying to do it on your own because that's normally where things go wrong so if that's you and you want prayer I just want to ask you to raise your hand right now so that we can pray with you is there anybody who wants to make that that call and ask for prayer for that tonight. Great. Is there anybody else? Thank you. I'm just going to pray over you where you are. And as we close, I'm going to ask you to come to the front. So, Father, we thank you for these men and women that have raised their hands, Lord God. We thank you for this decision, and I ask, Lord, that right now you would touch them in their hearts, Lord God, that they have decided that they're not going to do things on their own anymore, that they're going to walk according to your way, and we thank you that you are meeting them with your grace and your love and your goodness 
in this moment. I pray that as they surrender their lives to you, as they decide they're not going to do things on their own anymore, that you would fill them with the wisdom, knowledge, and truth of your love and your way. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. We just invite you to bring transformation to them in Jesus' name. Amen.